For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Virginia held its first regulated elk hunt in over 60 years in October, marking the beginning of what hunters hope will be a new annual tradition. Six hunters participated in this inaugural hunt, all of whom successfully harvested a mature bull. Thanks to Kyle Mosier for sending this one in. Elk lived throughout Virginia prior to the arrival of European settlers, but the species was over-harvested in the 18th and 19th centuries. Colonel G. Tooley harvested the last known elk in 1855. The state attempted a reintroduction in the early decades of the 20th century, but poor habitat, poor release locations, and over-harvest meant that only two elk herds remained by 1926. Elk hunting continued until 1960, when the state held its final regulated hunt. Fast forward to 2010, and the state decided to revamp its elk restoration efforts by importing 71 elk from Kentucky and releasing them in Buchanan County. The state adopted an elk management plan over the next few years, and the herd grew into more than 250 individuals by 2020. Biologists determined that even though the elk herd has plenty of room to grow, it's large enough to support a highly regulated hunt for a small number of bulls. A whopping 31,951 hunters applied for only five tags. The sixth tag was given to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation which it raffled off to raise money for elk conservation. Between that raffle and the lottery, this hunt generated over 600000 for elk conservation. It sounds like a great time was had by all, and I want to especially highlight the role that landowners played. 20 different landowners gave hunters access to 17,000 acres, and several of them even lent the hunters a hand by accompanying them on the hunt. 
Other landowners didn't participate in the hunts, but they donated their time and resources to help the hunters retrieve their harvested elk. According to the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, the role that landowners played cannot be overstated. The six bulls harvested weighed between 691 pounds and 852 pounds, which is a very big bull elk. All bulls were at least three and a half years old and one clocked in at 11 and a half. The largest bull harvested was an 8 by 9 that green scored over 400 inches. The term green essentially means premature in the antler or horn scoring world. To be officially scored, a drying period of 60 days must take place at, quote, room temperature, according to the Boone and Crockett Club, which means I'll probably never get anything officially scored because, you know, skulls can stink. But no matter that. Because if you like to score things or don't like to score things, a trophy is a trophy to you, the person who harvested it. So if this person who killed the bull that green scored over 400 inches and then it officially scores at 398, well, that's a hell of a bull. Match it with the fact that you drew one of six tags in Virginia. I don't even know why you'd tape the thing. It's a harvest of a lifetime. Congrats to those lucky six hunters. A big thanks to the willing landowners, and hopefully this will be the first of many more elk hunts to come in Virginia. This week, we've got crime, invasives, and cal to action. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. My week was interesting. I'm currently packing for Kansas, where we'll have attempted another hunt for waterfowl in that state. Last year, we showed up to 70 plus degrees, t-shirt wearing weather and it was darn near too hot to run the dog. This year, the forecast is for nasty weather, which hopefully means duck luck on the water. Also, and obviously, if you have ventured to the meateater.com or First Light or FHF or Phelps Game Calls, we are matching all donations to the Land Access Initiative. This year's big push is for the Montana Great Outdoors Project, which is a series of permanent easements in northwest Montana, just east of Glacier National Park. These easements will total about 113,000 acres of timber company land. Permanent easements will ensure that this working timber ground is not lost to development and we will be able to access the properties and the public ground beyond those properties in perpetuity. I know it's December and you are probably spending too much cash already, but if you want to throw some money at the Land Access Initiative, we'll double it. Getting back to the waterfowl topic, I just had a really interesting phone call with a waterfowl guide buddy of mine in the Pacific Flyway. He was letting me know about some bird behavior he's been witnessing recently that would most likely be explained through avian bird flu. If you haven't forgotten, we are still in the worst outbreak of avian bird flu in recent memory. According to the CDC, we currently have confirmed cases in 47 states and 346 counties in domestic flocks. These cases have affected to date 53,018,741 birds. This includes backyard flocks and commercial flocks again. Just one example. On December 6th, Cherokee County, Iowa, 105,000 turkeys at one facility. 105,000 Thanksgiving turkeys. Now in wild birds, the flu has been confirmed in 48 states, 710 counties, and a total of 4,362 birds. Very notable that almost without exception, the source of these wild birds that have been turned in for testing are from hunters. 
Now we can assume that there are far more wild birds affected than those turned in, right? But I think it is also fair to assume that wild birds will fare much better in areas with avian flu outbreaks than domestic flocks because of the conditions in which wild birds live. Yes, birds flock together, but they have a heck of a lot more elbow room on the big lakes, the stock ponds, the timber holes, and refuges than mass-produced or even hobby-flock-raised poultry. We hunters that are spending a lot of time in the field or traveling to multiple areas, states, etc., can help prevent the spread of avian influenza by taking some basic precautions. Be suspicious of the birds. My buddy, the waterfowl guide, described a day where upon approaching the blind, an adult snow goose was swimming circles around the decoys. The bird's eyes were glazed over, and it was obviously not right. Most likely sick. Later, at the same blind, three adult snow geese, and if you've ever hunted snow geese, the adults are the ones that you want to kill, but often you do not. Old snow geese are notoriously hard to decoy and kill. This group flew directly over the top of their spread and really low, and he and his hunters killed the birds. They did not look right. He's seen a lot of waterfowl behavior, and he just thought they didn't behave right prior to being dead. They kept the birds separated from the other birds that they had harvested that morning. Then they bagged and removed the birds to a landfill after consulting with a game warden. Not a great story. Not an ideal day. But where appropriate, it's a good idea to have your local warden's number handy. On top of that, here's some precautions. Harvest only waterfowl that look and behave healthy, which can be hard to do. Do not handle or eat sick game. Do not handle wild birds that are obviously sick or found dead. Field dress and prepare game outdoors in a well-ventilated area. Wear rubber gloves or other impermeable, disposable gloves while handling and cleaning game. Remove and discard intestines soon after harvesting and avoid direct contact with intestinal contents. Place waste in a plastic bag and dispose in a garbage container that is protected from scavengers. Do not eat, drink, smoke, or vape while handling dead game. When done handling game, wash hands thoroughly with soap and water and clean knives, equipment, and surfaces that came in contact with game. Wash hands before and after handling the meat. Keep your harvested waterfowl cool, below 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And then obviously, if you're going to keep it for the long haul, freeze it. Thoroughly cook all game to an internal temperature of 165 before consuming which is a tough pill to swallow. Clean and disinfect clothing, footwear, and hunting gear before traveling to other areas. As appropriate, footwear and gear may be washed with soap and water, then disinfected in household bleach diluted with a 1 to 10 ratio, that's with water, for at least 10 minutes. Bathe dogs with pet shampoo after hunting outings and do not feed dogs raw meat, organs, or other tissues from harvested waterfowl. Falconers should avoid hunting waterfowl and other water birds during the HPAI outbreak. HPAI is avian bird flu, but it's highly pathogenic avian influenza. You got it? HPAI? Now, if you think that's a giant pain in the ass and overly precautious, listen to the domestic side of things, and this is from the National Chicken Council. Quarantine. First, the farmer ensures that the affected flock stays put in one area, along with any equipment that has been near the birds. Step two, eradicate. The affected flock is then quickly and humanely euthanized. 
It's important to note it doesn't matter if it's a bird or 20 birds in your flock. The flock is considered affected and all of them are killed. Three, monitor the region. At the same time, both wild and domestic birds in a broad surrounding control area are tested and monitored for avian influenza. Step four, disinfect the farm where the flock was housed to ensure any traces of the virus is killed. This includes machinery, personal gear, the literal chicken coop, water troughs, feeding troughs, anything that a new bird could come in contact with. Step five, the entire poultry farm is carefully tested for 21 days to confirm it is free of bird flu before allowing a new flock of birds to arrive. No birds from HPAI infected flocks are ever allowed to enter the food chain. So you got to kill all your birds that you've invested money in and then be out of business 21 days in addition to all the time it took to eradicate your previous flock, clean everything, disinfect everything, dispose of things, and restock. That's a pain in the ass. And I'm bringing all this up because I've seen a lot of commentary that's pretty shitty if I'm being, um, you know, still talking chickens, I guess. That'd be appropriate. Kids, cover your ears. Anyway, folks find that there's some sort of political agenda between wildlife diseases and, uh, you know, our experience with COVID. But just like I talked about last week, friends and neighbors, I had a very long, fun, super healthy hunting season, and I didn't get COVID again until I went to the big, big city and congregated in places to eat, drink, and, you know, I guess party. I don't think that's a coincidence. So when it comes to avian influenza, chronic wasting disease, I just urge folks who are very skeptical to think about what we do on the agricultural side of things. And agriculture and hunting are tied together more than we want to care about, but it's the truth, okay? When you went out and shot deer in a big CWD zone this year, it was a pain in the ass, way more than I wanted to, right? We had to deer bone everything on the spot. I love my opportunities to take all those deer bones out of the woods and make stock with them. But because I don't have a commercial freezer or refrigeration set up here at home, I couldn't hang the deer until I got the CWD results back and then process it. On top of that, you're taking that contaminated or possibly contaminated stuff across county lines and you have to properly dispose of it in a landfill. But the further you travel with stuff, the greater risk you run of spreading things that you don't want to spread around, right? So when we talk about things like chronic wasting disease or avian influenza and where those two things cross with hunting, I often see it's because it's a pain in the ass, right? Or sometimes we feel like because we are such responsible stewards of these resources and have been for such a long time, that when a government agency suggests that we need to do things differently, we take that as a personal slight, right? Like when it comes to baiting, okay? There's still a lot of places where you can bait deer, and that becomes, you know, a great way for kids to kill stuff. It becomes like a good way to hedge your bets, let's say, if you only have one weekend to hunt, or it just becomes a tradition, and you love the people you hunt with, you love the people that you learn to hunt with, and it's this personal slight where you're like, oh, well, if grandpa did it, nothing that guy did was ever wrong. How could this be wrong? The state doesn't know what it's talking about. And guess what? When it comes to CWD, we don't entirely know what we're talking about. We're trying to find that out. 
But if you could fast forward a few generations and either have to explain to your great grandkids that, oh my God, we didn't want to give up baiting for a couple of seasons. And now deer only live to about two years old, this horrible worst case scenario, or CWD eventually jumped to people or something, you know, way down the road that could be like truly catastrophic. Or you explain to your great grandkids that like, oh yeah, we didn't know a lot about this disease. So in order to help out and try to figure this stuff out, because we love deer hunting, we gave up shooting deer over cracked corn for a couple of seasons turned in deer lymph nodes. Now we know a lot about it and we fixed the issue. Or some other scenario where it's like, oh, now we know a ton about it and, you know, life just went on as normal and we prevented some worst case scenario. Like, I I just don't, I do not understand why it's more fun or better for you to avoid the citizen science part of this. I do not get it. But please write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's AskCal, at TheMeatEater.com, and let me know your side of the story. I'm dying to hear how it makes sense. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com. 
com slash meat eater. Moving on to the invasive desk. Natural ecosystems in the United States dodged a bullet recently when border inspections discovered a dangerous, highly destructive moth that had pitched a ride on a commercial boat. Agriculture specialists with U.S. Customs and Border Protection recently discovered four Asian gypsy moth egg masses on a Panamanian bulk carrier off the coast of Louisiana. The ship has been targeted for inspection because a month previously it had docked in a port in China that's considered a high-risk area for Asian gypsy moths. Officials found egg masses on the exterior of the vessel on both lower and main decks. They ordered the ship to move outside U.S. waters where it underwent extensive cleaning and inspection. If you're wondering what the big deal is, you're listening to the right podcast. According to the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Asian gypsy moths are an invasive species that could cause, quote, serious widespread damage to our country's landscape and natural resources. Asian gypsy moths are similar to European gypsy moths already found in the northeastern United States, but they can be far more destructive. They have a broader host range than their European cousins because the females are considered active flyers. They can cover a wide area, which means they could easily sweep across the entire country. Once they settle in a place, they can lay hundreds of eggs, which if you recall from your elementary school science class, all turn into caterpillars. Those caterpillars are a lot like that children's book. They're very hungry. Except instead of ice cream and smoked meats, these caterpillars can feed on more than 500 tree and shrub species. Infestations can totally defoliate trees, and multiple years of defoliation can lead to the death of large sections of forests, orchards, and landscaping. Unfortunately, despite the efforts of our Border Patrol agents, Asian gypsy moths have already been discovered in Washington State, Oregon, Georgia, Oklahoma, and South Carolina. Ongoing surveys in those states will help determine whether infestations are present and what follow-up actions may be needed to address them. In the meantime, the USDA encourages concerned citizens to learn what egg masses look like and report them if found. If the Asian gypsy moth wants to be successful, it could take a page out of the feral hog's playbook. Since the USDA began tracking the feral hog population in 1982, those fecund little porkers have expanded and solidified their range across the southern U.S. They now cover the majority of 12 states and have been reported in a whopping 35. Their latest conquest, according to an article sent in by listener Eric Hill, is the northern state of Minnesota. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources was called in recently to round up some feral pigs found roaming the southern portion of the state. Several adults and some piglets were found in Faribault County, which officials later learned had escaped from a nearby farm. This is obviously better news than if feral pigs had migrated from another state. Still, Minnesota wildlife officials took it seriously. All feral pigs in the U.S. are descended from domesticated pigs that have gone wild. Feral swine were first brought to the United States in the 1500s by early explorers and settlers as a source of food. Escaped individuals adapted well to the local environment, where they caused extensive damage to agriculture and native species. It's extremely difficult to eradicate pigs from an area once a population has taken hold, but wildlife officials in recent decades have done a good job containing the population to its current boundaries. If you look at the distribution maps between 2004 and 2018, they look pretty familiar. The southern states and California are solidly covered, but comparatively speaking, the north and midwest are still relatively pig-free. Now, 
one thing we have going against the Asian gypsy moth that we lost the battle on in regards to pigs a long time ago is the fact that we don't have a massive recreational hunting industry built around moths. As everybody knows, if you ask a pig hunter whether they're really trying to eradicate them, uh, you're going to hear them say no. Moving on to the public lands desk. You may remember last year when our friends at the Center for Biological Diversity sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for opening 2.3 million acres of public land to hunting and fishing. They claimed that the Fish and Wildlife Service hadn't considered the effect of their decision on endangered species, and they specifically took issue with the continued use of lead tackle and ammunition. Late last month, we got a statement. The two sides started talking to the public again. Access is not restricted in any way to 2.3 million acres of the Fish and Wildlife Service ground that had previously been opened. All those new hunting opportunities and fishing opportunities are moving forward, which is great news. However, the Fish and Wildlife Service agreed to respond to a separate petition made by the Center of Biological Diversity in June of this year. That petition asked the Fish and Wildlife Service to phase out the use of all traditional ammunition in the National Wildlife Refuge system. The settlement requires the service to respond to that petition by June of 2023. Now, here's our opportunity, right? The Center for Biological Diversity is claiming this as a big win already, even though the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not issued their statement or official response to the petition. We have seen U.S. Fish and Wildlife ban the use of lead tackle and ammo at certain refuges, specifically about seven or eight. But that's a lot different than banning lead across the country. You have tons of time for your opinion to be heard. The service has to respond to the CBD's petition by June of 2023, which gives you just over six months to contact the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Visit fws.gov forward slash contact dash us. That's U.S. Moving on to an overseas edition of the Crime Desk. The war in Ukraine is still raging, but the overachieving Ukrainian army has made headway against Russian forces. They've made so much progress, in fact, that they're allegedly shelling Russian soldiers for poaching geese. According to a video and a statement released by the State Border Service of Ukraine, a Ukrainian drone spied a group of Russian soldiers shooting and killing geese near a village in the southern portion of the country. The video appears to show three or four soldiers in a field, one of whom has a dead goose at his feet, Another soldier fires at a group of birds which scatter at the sound of the gunshot. The video cuts to footage of a soldier entering a nearby home, which the border service claims has been occupied by the Russians who were preparing a goose feast. Now, politics aside, nobody likes a poacher. The Ukrainians responded by shelling the house that the Russians were occupying. Now, it's worth noting that not everything the Ukrainian government says about the war is, you know, accurate. But as a counter-poaching measure you have to admit that artillery would be pretty darned effective. And speaking of tough poacher sentencing, 11 people have been sentenced to death by a Tanzanian court for their role in the murder of anti-poaching activist Wayne Lauder. Lauder was the director and co-founder of the PAMS Foundation, an NGO that trained Tanzanian game scouts and developed an intelligence-based approach to anti-poaching. He was from South Africa, but had been working on counter-poaching projects in Tanzania since 2008, focusing specifically on elephant poaching. Poaching in Tanzania is big business, and Lauder apparently received multiple death threats prior to his assassination. In 2017, he was riding in a taxi in Tanzania's commercial capital of Dar es Salaam, 
when the car was ambushed. A subsequent five-year police investigation determined that the two men who performed the killing were aided by nine others, and all 11 were given death sentences. However, since Tanzania doesn't carry out executions, the 11 convicts will spend the rest of their lives in jail. Moving on to the legislative desk. If you live in Oklahoma, Missouri, or Utah, your state has made or is considering significant changes to hunting regulations. This is your job to be involved. Now's the time to be informed and make sure you understand these new rules. The Oklahoma Department of Fish and Wildlife is proposing 16 rule changes. One would extend squirrel season by an extra month. Another would authorize air-powered arrow rifles for deer hunting. And yet another would require duck hunters to remove their blinds at the end of each day. The final major rule change would prohibit the transport of deer and elk carcasses out of designated areas where those animals are at risk of carrying chronic wasting disease. If you have opinions about these or any of the other 12 proposals, you can submit comments online through January 6, 2023. Google the Oklahoma Department of Natural Resources or go to themeateater.com forward slash cal for the link to the survey. Residents can also submit comments at the January 5th hearing in Oklahoma City. In Missouri, the Department of Conservation recently set turkey and deer hunting dates for the 2023 through 24 seasons, along with deer hunting regulation changes. The regulation changes include a new firearms early antlerless portion, a new firearms CWD portion, and changes to firearms antlerless permit numbers in most counties. These changes were largely motivated by the increasing number of deer on the landscape and a desire to control the spread of CWD. The Missouri Conservation Commission approved the changes at their December 2nd meeting, but it's still worth reaching out. If you love these new opportunities for antlerless deer, let them know. If you don't, be sure they hear from Missouri hunters. You can find contact info at mdc.mo.gov forward slash contact dash U.S. Utah has also announced changes to its big game hunting regs. The Utah Wildlife Board approved a new 10-year Utah statewide elk management plan, which includes several changes to elk hunting in the state. These changes will take effect in 2023. They include removing multi-season permits for the any bull elk hunt, adding six additional general season hunting units to that elk hunt, and dividing the current general season 13-day any legal weapon any bull hunt into two separate seven-day hunts. There are quite a few other changes which you can check out by googling New Elk Regulations Utah or, again, visit themeateater.com forward slash cal. Virginia is considering some major changes to its fishing regulations. Back in episode 172, we covered a controversy about a Menhaden fishing operation working along the Virginia coast. Menhaden, or Bunka, are small, oily forage fish scooped up in nets by large fishing boats and reduced down to fish oil and fish meal. Virginia is the only state along the East Coast that allows this kind of reduction fishing, and many recreational anglers believe the practice should be outlawed. Virginia Marine Resources Commission is thinking about doing just that. Yeah, sort of. A new proposal would create a no-fishing buffer one nautical mile wide around Virginia shorelines and Virginia Beach and a half nautical mile wide around the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Another proposal would expand the days around holidays when fishing is prohibited. Neither side is happy with the proposals, 
The Menhaden fishing operations don't want their activities hampered at all, and the recreational anglers don't believe a one-mile buffer zone is going to do much good. If you live in Virginia and want to weigh in, you can get in touch with the Virginia Marine Resource Commission through their website or find a link at themeateater.com forward slash cal. There are also several legislative proposals on this topic that we'll be covering in the coming weeks, so be sure to keep an eye out for those. Over in Iowa, legislators will consider a bill this year that would make it much easier for farmers and other property owners to kill raccoons outside the state's three-month raccoon hunting season. As in many areas of the country, the raccoon population in Iowa has skyrocketed. Urbanization combined with reduced fur prices have made raccoon hunting and trapping far less common, and those masked mammals have wreaked havoc in both urban and rural areas. You may have seen a viral video where a possibly rabid raccoon attacks a young girl. Mom comes out, grabs the raccoon by the scruff of the neck in a total power move, and chucks it like a furry little shot put. Anyway, raccoons are native to North America, and like dogs and cats, they're part of the order Carnivora. But they're more closely related to bears than our domestic friends, and I wouldn't recommend trying to, you know, domesticate one. They get in too much trouble. They're too dexterous. If you can open it, they can open it. It's a bad deal. Anyway, this new bill proposed by state rep Dean Fisher would allow anyone to kill a raccoon without obtaining permission if it's for, quote, nuisance control purposes. He argues that the hunting season isn't enough to control the population and farmers should be allowed to proactively reduce their raccoon population before their crops become attractive. It's certainly true that raccoon hunting and trapping has become less effective in recent years. Data reported by the Des Moines Register shows that the number of raccoons trapped has dramatically declined from about 308,000 in 2011 to about 34,500 in 2021. For those counting, that's a 90% reduction in the raccoon harvest in just the last 10 years. Now, you may be saying, well, obviously, fewer animals and traps means the population must be going down. Well, In this case, the state's raccoon population has surged 268% in the last 16 years. To get involved, get in touch with your Iowa State representative at legis, that's L-E-G-I-S dot Iowa dot gov forward slash contacts. Yes, we'll have the link for you too. The other thing that you can do is start begging right now for a genuine, authentic Iowa coonskin cat for Christmas. Do your part. Start looking hip. And the last one for you. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced last month that after years of deliberation, they have decided to list two distinct population segments of the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act. This is a terrible and horrible thing. The southern population of the lesser prairie chicken is being listed as endangered, while the northern population is being listed as threatened. The service said in a press release that due to habitat loss and fragmentation, the population of this grassland bird has dropped from hundreds of thousands to about 32,000 in 2022. This is happening on our watch. This is a problem for the species, but it's also bad for grasslands in general. The lesser prairie chicken needs large, unfragmented parcels of intact native grasslands to maintain self-sustaining populations, and they obviously haven't been able to find that. The southern endangered population encompasses eastern New Mexico and across the southwest Texas panhandle. The northern region encompasses southeastern Colorado, south-central to western Kansas, western Oklahoma, and the northeast Texas panhandle. 
Listing a species under the Endangered Species Act comes with a host of complications for farmers and ranchers. I'm sure we'll come back to this story in the future. For now, it's a sobering reminder that our best efforts aren't always enough to keep animals off the ESA, and little to no effort damn sure doesn't help either. Grasslands encompass a wide variety of what we consider prairie or sagebrush steppe ecosystems. These ecosystems are essential for a lot more than prairie chickens. Think big awesome mule deer, antelope, even nesting habitat for ducks, and a ton of other migratory bird species and pollinators. Just so happens, there's a ton of helpful tools and provisions in the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Thanks so much for listening. That's all I got for you this week. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Also, if the snow's piling up and you need a good project, Maybe uh, type in www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. You can go down to uh, a dealer, talk about a project. They're going to get you set up with what you need, not try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks, sent right to your door visit mauinuivenison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order